Hi, you're listening to Sensationalist Science, a podcast about science, the media, and the truth behind those astonishing headlines you've read. I'm your host, GetMK, aka The Health Nerd, and today I've got a very special episode for you all. I'll be talking COVID-19 and vaccines with the spectacular Dr. Bill Hanage, Professor of Public Health and collaborator with me on COVID-19 research. We'll be going over what the COVID-19 vaccines are, how we know that they haven't been rushed, how we know that they are safe to get, and what the future looks like with vaccinations for us all. It's something of a hopeful episode for the end of the year. And without further ado, let's dive right in. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We've got uh, Dr. Bill Hanage, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome, Bill. Hi, good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Nice and early in Australia and nice and uh, evening in Cambridge. Cambridge? Yeah. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm looking out the window. It's raining. It's grey. It's horrible. And um, there's snow in the forecast for later this week. Brilliant. It's important to clarify Cambridge, Massachusetts, because your accent could lead people to believe you're in the other Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. Um, I am um, I am British, um, but the way that I had that weird D um, there, um, rather than British, indicates the 10 years that I've spent living in the United States. And so occasionally my accent, yeah, it's a bit of a movable feast. Um, <laughs> can be, um, it can be a little bit mid-Atlantic, by which I do not mean I sound like I'm from Delaware, but, uh, but the occasional consonants end up being quite you know, different from how I used to talk. I, I can imagine. Um, my 15 years of, in Australia has dulled my British accent to almost nothing, but occasionally, particularly on the podcast, when I actually try to say, I, I try to pronounce my consonants again, and suddenly I sound very British. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe we'll both end up sounding more British than we ordinarily do. I mean, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be terribly surprising. I mean, that's a very, um, I mean, you know, I, I get reminded when I when I go to the UK of how much I've drifted, but I, I have yes. a, I have a friend who I, I, I have a friend a guy called Nick Lohman who's at the University of Birmingham who I, I once um, I once was talking to him and I did an Amer- I did an American accent for about ten minutes and then he said you can stop now and I <laughs> found it kind of hard to get out of it which was very unsettling. Well, if I end up sounding more British, my wife will be very happy, but everyone else will be very confused. So how is the pandemic treating you? How, how is uh, it looking where you live? Um, well, where we live right now in Massachusetts is actually quite, quite interesting. Um, I mean, the United States as a whole has had, it's fair to say, a bad pandemic so far and getting worse. Massachusetts had a really grim spring and then a very quiet summer and early fall. But then we got up to the situation. And one of the things we do have, which is actually really to the credit of the neighborhood here and to the people working around here, and I think to the credit of investment locally, is very good testing. Mm. It's, I mean, it's it's really excellent testing. Um, it's, and, I mean, again, it could be better, but relative to a lot of the United States, it's excellent. Um, but we were running about 2,000, 3,000 cases a day, rough sort of plateauing for about two weeks before Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, that leapt to 5,000. So almost like in the week over Thanksgiving. Um, and then it's sort of plateaued again, which I mean, I'm, I mean, I hesitate to draw too 
strong conclusions, especially as numbers come in at different times and so on. But that's, um, you know, it's a it's a large number of cases. Um, but the thing that matters, of course, is hospitalizations and hospitalizations are starting to get to the point where it's really quite dicey. I mean, we wouldn't be able to take very much more without uh, a large. I mean, some ICUs are getting close to overwhelmed already or are overwhelmed and they're having to sort of share patients. Um, deaths are running at a fraction of the worst in the spring, but increasing. And obviously, the, you know, we're still at the start of December, pretty much. So it's not going great. On the other hand, it could be considerably worse. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's going to get considerably worse. Uh, that's uh, very sobering. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, really. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sorry to be I'm sorry to be reporting it, but it is the state of affairs. I mean, I, as I say this, I'm, you know, long time people who've listened to me or watched things I've said or stuff talking about this. I do hesitate to be very strong in my predictions, but I think that we're all expecting January to be extremely difficult and probably late December as well. I mean, it's a very... Um, Unfortunately, the amount of transmission that's happening in the United States at the moment is just not something that you can get away from having a severe effect. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's very worrying. But a ray of hope, which we're hopefully going to talk about today, is the vaccines that have been developed. So we've now had three announcements of, well, technically, if you include the Sputnik vaccine from Russia, four announcements of vaccines that have been um at least completed their initial trials from Moderna, BioNTech, Pfizer, which is obviously the same vaccine, and AstraZeneca. Um, the first question I'd like to ask is, do you think the vaccine development has been rushed this year? Because that's the question that, that I think everyone is asking. Yeah. So the answer I'd like to, I mean, the answer to come here, and the first thing to say, by the way, is that you know, my expertise is in disease transmission, evolution, epidemiology. I'm I have studied in exhaustively the response of pathogen populations to vaccination, but I don't make vaccines myself. So that's that's the first thing play out there. Um, but I'd, I want to make a comment that um, a very brilliant scientist, Dr. Paul Offit, made, um, who he made the point that we're talking about emergency use authorization. That's a slightly misleading term it'd be nicer if it was like pandemic use authorization because that gives a because you know pandemics don't come along all the time emergency use authorization is like just when there's something you're trying to do to it's a different set of circumstances um it has by rushed what that implies is cutting corners mm. and corners have not been cut in the development i mean that's gone through phase one phase two phase three trials um, I forget the exact numbers in each trial now, but very large numbers of people have received the vaccine and the, you know, they, they have been studied to look for adverse events, as we call them. Um, and when we, when they are observed, the trials have been halted and they have been investigated in order to see if there is any um, consequence of them. And there will be continued monitoring of this going forward. That's the... I mean, that is the size of it. So I am, you know, I am confident the these, I mean, the, the best answer I suppose I can give is that I would have the vaccine myself without hesitation. 
other than the fact that I think there are a lot of other people who need them first, because not everybody, you know, as you, you and I have worked together on some of this, you know, not everybody is at equal risk. Yes, absolutely. It should probably worth mentioning for the podcast listeners. Uh, Bill is a co-author on the paper that we worked together on about the age stratified infection fatality risk of COVID-19. Um, and in terms of the vaccine study numbers, I think uh, I, I have read some of the protocols. And so Moderna was aiming for 30,000 people, I believe. Uh, BioNTech Pfizer was 40,000, 44,000 people. Um, AstraZeneca had a similarly high number in the tens of thousands. Sputnik doesn't have their protocol yeah. online, so but Sputnik is difficult to interpret. I mean, one of the things which is important in all these cases is transparency because it enables, you know, health nerds to <laughs> to pick over the data and see and try and understand it themselves. Um, and so these are, uh, and I think that to a greater or lesser extent, that is the case with these, although some of them have been published in peer-reviewed journals and the numbers are available to a greater or lesser extent, I would actually personally prefer more transparency. But I think there is enough transparency to reassure me that the um, that these vaccines are you know, sufficiently safe to be meeting the emergency use authorization that the, has just been coming from the FDA. So, so far, by the way, the time we're talking, unless anything has happened while I've been looking the other way, um, I think it's only Pfizer which has got the um, emergency use authorization, and, and but that's like I would not be surprised at all if that was followed up by the others. And I mean, it's worth noting that there are. I mean, one of the things that we can come to instantly is that I think there's something really important in the observation that we have some evidence of efficacy from Sputnik aside, three different vaccines. Mm. using two very different ways of like making of, of immunization one of which has never been has never actually been made into technology before it's a new technology it's one that we've spoken of it's one we thought could be possible this mrna vaccine but the fact that the pfizer one is an mrna vaccine and we can talk about what that is is stunning um and it's a real kind of it's amazing that we have got this we've got this type of product um, so comparatively quickly, and I really do think it's a triumph. Um, you know, that said, triumph or not, I'm still going to think carefully about interpreting the numbers that come out of it and what that might mean. And of course, as we're going to, as I'm sure we're going to come to, it's not time for a ticker tape parade just yet. Well, I think actually it would be great to hear about what mRNA vaccines are and why it's so impressive that we've managed to get them out in, in this year. I would quickly like to note also, it, it's I think it's reassuring locally in Australia, we had a vaccine, it's been huge news here, I doubt it's reached anywhere else in the world. Um, there was a vaccine that had finished state phase two trials and they were planning on spending a billion dollars uh, conducting a phase three trial in Australia and elsewhere. Um, and then it turned out that because they'd used an immunogenic part of the HIV virus, not the virus itself, but one gene, I believe, um, to construct the vaccine. Um, people were testing positive to HIV for a week after they got the vaccine. And so they canned it. The billion dollar investment is gone and the vaccine uh, is canceled. Wow, I, had, I had not heard that. That's, that's spectacular. And, and again, that sort of illustrates the, it illustrates the degree of scrutiny. Mm. Rightly so, which these products are, which these products are met with. So that's that's astonishing. So the mRNA 
vaccine? I mean, first of all, you need to know what mRNA is. Um, and mRNA, what does the M stand for? Because I think a lot of people are asking. Yeah, it's messenger. Messenger <laughs> RNA. Um, and the, I mean, this is a little bit of kind of molecular biology. Um, when your body makes proteins, what happens is a little, a little thing called a message, which is made of this stuff called RNA, is copied and then leaves the nucleus of the cell, which is where, you know, where the genes are, and wanders out into the rest of the cell where that message gets read and turned into protein. Now, if your cell is infected by a virus, those genes which are getting, um, you know, copied or not copied, they're getting, you know, being used to be read and turned into message RNA, which then gets turned into proteins, include viral genes and viral proteins. So when you're infected with the virus, each of your cells is effectively becoming a factory for the virus to make more copies of itself. And your your own cells are copying this, you know, copying the virus. The virus is copying itself within your cells and the mRNA is going to make proteins to make more viruses. Um, now, what this, what you're seeing here is the mRNA for one of the proteins in the virus, which that is the vaccine effectively. It is injected with these little, you know, I don't want to get too far over my skill at skis because I'm not really, as I say, I'm not a vaccine person, but these little lipid nanoparticles, which are tiny little globules of fat with the mRNA inside them, um, into humans. And that means they can get into human cells and the human cells start making copies of the viral protein. And the immune system looks at that and goes, oh, that's new, don't like that, and mounts an immune response against it. Without you having to be anywhere near any whole virus of any kind at all. It is just making, you are making the copy of the protein, which your immune system then recognizes as being something new and therefore suspect and amounts an immune response to it. And that, in a nutshell, is the way these things work. I mean, the, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine uses a, a different, much more established technology, which is when you take a, um, a, another virus which is not, not harmful to humans, in this, um, in this case, it's actually a simian virus, um, and you put one of the genes from the virus from the virus of interest that you're trying to make an, a vaccine against into it and you use that to inoculate and that's a more established technology um but it works it's you know it works sort of by a similar route except in this case you are actually you're, you're, you're not using just one gene it's not like the laser targeted focus on the one gene so it's it's a super i mean it's a remarkably impressive feat that there are now not one but two vaccines that it appears that we have made by the mRNA route and using the mRNA tech. And that's really exciting because maybe there are other vaccines to be made in the future using mm. this. Well, the, the only when I when I looked for reviews of mRNA vaccines earlier on, when I heard they were being developed, I found a 2018 paper that suggested that they could be very useful for things like um, rabies, uh, HIV, um, Ebola, like, you know, persistent problems that we still don't really have an answer to. Yeah, um, I think that it's going to be extremely exciting. And the, you know, the, the vaccine makers will have learned a lot of interesting and important tricks in the, this process. So why 
I want to come, actually, I want to think, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the AstraZeneca um, trials. Yes. I'm, I'm, yeah. I think it's an interesting outlier in some ways, because for, for some context for the listeners, uh, the other two vaccine manufacturers ran one giant trial. Um, AstraZeneca has run a number of smaller trials. And what they're reporting uh, now is the, a meta-analysis from those smaller trials. And the result that's being reported most, uh, which is this 90% efficacy, came from one trial where they actually made a mistake. Yeah. And that is, a, I think... You know, it's they're reporting it as as if it's this wonderful fortuitous leap in science, but you don't want leaps in science made by mistakes during vaccine trials. Is that that's my understanding at least? Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable. Um, I I mean, the idea is that I mean, when when you're trying to develop a vaccine, there's lots of questions about how many doses do you need, how when should they be timed, because the initial response to the immune system often needs to be boosted. You know, secondary exposure in order to provide long-lasting protection. So, and I, I should point out also, I mean, one of my favorite pieces of writing in the whole pandemic was Ed Yong in The Atlantic talking about immunology. And the line he used in there was, immunology is where intuition goes to die. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it, immunology is extraordinary. I'm, I'm really impressed by people who have a serious grasp of immunology. Um, the so what we are so you, you there's all, always this question about which is the best um, dosing regime you know when should you have your first dose when should you have the booster etc and you know even licensed vaccines we have considerable discussion about that um different countries have different um regimens and they, they you know there are and they, they kind of compare results in order to try and see which one is best and, and it's a continual process of just trying to get make make things better um, so in the trial, the, um, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, one of the, one of the, um, one of the little subgroups within it inadvertently gave half the dose as the first dose. And then, and that was noticed, I believe, because people were kind of thinking, we're not having much of a reaction to this. Because you must know this, every, every time, every time you get a shot, there's this little bit there's this kind of local inflammation and that's that's normal it's it's also a sign that the shot's doing its business it's a sign that the immune system is taking notice sitting up and paying attention and hopefully learning the lesson we wanted to learn about uh, the the new uh, the, the new antigen that we're trying to mount a response to uh, so when people realized that this was people were not having the same amount of reaction to it the same reactogenicity is the technical word and people went and looked at it and found much to their concern that they'd been having half the dose that they were expected to be having. But they proceeded with the trial and it turned out that that particular arm of the trial was estimated to be 90 percent vaccine efficacy, meaning the number of cases were reduced by 90 percent from what you'd expect if there was if there was a placebo. Now, um, you're a bit of a statistical person, aren't you, Gid? Do you want to explain what the issues with that are? <laughs> Good. Well, the, the way these vaccine trials are created is that they're, they're powered for a certain number of events. Um, right. And the power it is essentially... 
Sorry. Oh, yes, indeed. So the, the, they choose a sample based on the number of people who, who they think will get the disease in question in their study over a period of time, um, over the period of time of the vaccine study. Um, and so um, the Moderna vaccine, for example, they thought that um, I, I keep mixing up the numbers in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in my head, but I'm pretty sure they thought that 30,000 people, 30,000 people would be needed to have uh, roughly 200 events. Um, so 200 people who actually got COVID and give you enough statistical power to compare between the arms and say that the vaccine was more effective. So if you reduce that by a factor of, I believe this was about 10. So they only had a tenth yeah, of their there was, there, full I think there were less size. than 2,800 in this particular group. Then what you find is that you don't have sufficient people to make a statistically meaningful, meaningful comparison. And in particular, I think their issue when it push came to shove with the licensing authorities was that the um, the benefits seen in this small subarm that was 90 percent effective was statistically indistinguishable from the benefits seen in the main arm, exactly. which was only 62 percent effective. Exactly. So, I mean, the exactly. And it's because when you have a smaller group that you're testing something in, your the precision of your estimate of how good it is, becomes less precise. There's more uncertainty. You know, the confidence intervals get bigger. Um, and you have to say that maybe this was something that you got by chance. I mean, that's that's the that's the real problem. Um, I mean, as a, I mean, it's one of those things which is profoundly uh, interesting. Um, in terms of what the best way to do these sorts of things is, because you're getting some information might be better than none, but it means that we now don't have something definitive in this extremely mm. important situation. And the other thing which you didn't mention, which is concerning, is that this group that received the half dose, initially, the half dosage in the first um, in the first jab, were none of them were over the age of 55. Uh, yes, that's right, 18 to 55. And what that means is that given that people under the age of 55 are expected to you know, do better, that is another cause for concern. In particular, since we, you know, one of the things we really want to know is whether or not this vaccine, any vaccine, works well in the age groups that are most at risk. So um, I'm, I mean, so that's the negative. <laughs> the positive <laughs> thing about it is that, as I said, we have multiple different vaccines that seem to work and a 60% efficacy is still good. There's also something really neat that the AstraZeneca trial did, which was actively looking for cases. Mm, that's right, yes. As because, opposed to the other vaccines. Exactly. I mean, the others, um, I haven't looked at Moderna in detail, but so Pfizer would say if you have any of these symptoms get tested and so on, um, but at least in some, I'm not entirely sure how much, because as I've said, not all of the details are available. And even if even if they are, I confess, I have a lot to read at the moment. <laughs> um, I, I will say, I think the Pfizer and BioNTech, the, the FDA has been beautifully transparent. They released the full product, the full um, paper a report that uh, Pfizer and BioNTech gave to them. It's 53 pages long. It is incredibly detailed and contains basically anything you need to know, which is, I mean, I, I will say as much as we're talking about transparency would be better. And I agree they every piece of transparency offered is, is more important, is important. 
But uh, compared to previous vaccine trials, these have been remarkably transparent. Yeah, they are working. They are going out of their way to put the data on the table so that we can look at it. And I, I think that's really appreciated. Um, yeah, I mean, like protocols are usually pretty commercial in confidence. They cost thousands of dollars to create, and Pfizer and Moderna just posted theirs online. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a step in the right direction, one that hopefully will be maintained. Mm. Um, you know, after the pandemic, but the um, just returning to the situation with Pfizer. So Pfizer, we're not looking for cases. What that means is that you're more likely to miss very, very mild ones. So I mean, if you imagine a person immunized with the Pfizer vaccine could be infected and transmit, but just be completely unaware of it. So like you know, the Pfizer vaccine is a magic wand that transforms everybody into asymptomatics. Then you have a problem for people who are not vaccinated, because the amount of infection that can come from them, can, you, you can still infect people who are themselves vulnerable because they haven't gotten the vaccine yet. And because we're not going to get the vaccine out like that into everybody, that's that's something we need to be thinking about. Um, I don't, it sounds like I, you're referring to the magical, ter- obliquely to the magical term of herd immunity here, Bill. Um, I prefer the term like population level immunity or, Sorry, yes. um, uh, or population protection or immune population protection, something like that. Yeah, um, I'm referring to the fact that if a person is unable to be infected and then unable to transmit the disease, they protect those individuals indirectly who they would who would have otherwise been exposed. And it's a great we could go into the um, we could go into that. But I think that's a that may, I may have to come back on the podcast to talk about that. Um, I so think it's the, a good idea, maybe. Yeah, it might be. Um, so the interesting thing, so the, where were we? Um, we were talking, yes, we were talking about that. So the thing about the, at least some of the AstraZeneca, I don't know if you know more than I do, Gid, but um, I'm not sure it was all of them because they were testing stuff in the Brazil and the UK. Um, but at least in some of the trial, they were doing like giving people a swab to do once a week or something. So they were actively surveilling people in order to see if people became infected, regardless of how severe the symptoms were. And that's very, that's extremely helpful. And I think that that means that that gives you confidence. That, that I mean, I wish that the other trials had done that, to be honest. I mean, you can't have everything. But again, mm-hmm. this is something that we've, we've, you know, we've learned from as we're going through it. I think um, actually at least one of the AstraZeneca trials, um, and I may be wrong about this, but from memory, uh, includes serology on every participant. Um, they right. using this uh, take-home kits, so they do the droplet test that the UK is doing. I see. So they that. test test for antibodies so that you can kind of tell if if the vaccine yeah, is working at least. You could do that, I guess. So yeah, so what you do there is you look for antibodies to um, viral proteins other than the ones that are in the vaccine. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I think those results will be important when we when we look at them. But as I say, it's still comparatively speaking early days on that. But it's I think it's I think it's good. Um, so now shall we? Um, yes, the the final the, the one of the questions I think everyone has and everyone's really interested in is when will they be able to get a vaccine and kind of. Uh, using that as a as a measure of when will life go back to normal, and I think it's particularly important to discuss this because a lot of people have uh, 
been given a misleading a misapprehension by the press releases that the farmer but you know these glowing wonderful the pandemic is over kind of press release yeah um, and actually so um yeah the call here comes to cold water um (laughs) so these free vaccines will limit it to the these for the moment we'll consider astrazeneca as being a part of the um, part of the issue part of part, part of the um what we might be trying to figure out how to use these things the problem with Pfizer is that it needs to be kept really, really cold. I mean, any scientist who's ever worked with RNA, and I, you know, I did some stuff with RNA, but a very long time ago. I mean, an incredibly long time ago. There's a reason why I, why I stopped working in labs. I'm not very good at it. Um, you and me both. Yeah, it's not my spreadsheets system. are much more forgiving. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, you don't have to do health and safety on it. Uh, so the RNA, so RNA is not very stable, um, and it's these vaccines need to be kept really, really cold. The Pfizer, I mean, they do say that it could be transported on dry ice um, for a, a while at least, but the storage needs to be at minus 70, minus 75 degrees Celsius, which is cold. And your average, you know, your average pharmacy, your average doctor's office doesn't have these things. Those freezers are expensive. I know, you know, I had to fork out the grant money for them. Um, and getting them at, on the kind of levels which would be required to vaccinate large numbers of people is going to be a logistical challenge. The second issue is, you know, how do you vaccinate? And there are many interesting questions around here, which I don't think we should get into right now. But obviously, there are issues with the um with older age groups, those who are most vulnerable. You also might want to think about patient-facing healthcare workers. Um, you want to ensure there's a lot of talk about vaccine equity, which is ensuring that people are, those who are most at risk for other reasons, because all of the population is not at equal risk of COVID, as we know bitterly. Um, making sure the vaccine rollout is equitable. And there are all of these discussions, and they're all very important. We could get into them another time. But the important thing right now is that there are a lot of people over the age of 65 or so, which I think is the point at which we start thinking this is seriously, you know, that's an age group which is really seriously at risk of the most severe outcomes. And it's, I, I think that in the United States, um, in the 2010 census, do go check this, but I think it was like over 100, 100 million people in that age group in the United States. And yeah, I, I think if you're living in the developed world, uh, somewhere between 10 and 30% of the population is above 65, depending right. on what you consider the developed world. And Yeah, so a lot, but I mean, a lot of people. And that, what that means is that the, it's just, that will take time to get the vaccine to them. And it's, I mean, I know that, President-elect Biden has said they're going to be vaccinating 100 million people in the first 100 days. Um, that's that's a lofty aim. I would be impressed if that succeeds. Um, I'll note that that's, is that fully vaccinated? Because you do need, at least for Pfizer, two doses three weeks apart. So um, let's not get into that. Yeah, I mean, even if you just think about it in terms of uh, in terms of the amount of time, that's, you know, five minutes per dose, 10 minutes per patient, 100 million patients, so it's a, a billion minutes 
of time <laughs> yeah. of nurse slash you know pharmacist slash whoever you can corral into giving these doses yeah and they need to be mixed and there are the ways that need to be done and how they're going to be done by in like local primary care physicians offices or are you going to i mean it's a it is a huge logistical issue so up until then in order to protect those people you're going to need to keep doing what we're doing at the moment that's i mean it's painful um but it's and it's not over yet the and then we haven't even when the older age groups are protected we need to remember that younger age groups can also be infected and a reasonably large proportion of people in the younger age groups do um develop long-term symptoms chronic conditions so-called long long haulers long covid whatever term you want to have uh whatever term you want to put out there and they, those people need protecting as well and that's not going to happen overnight again we're not going to be able to get vaccines into that so what may be the case um and i would defer here to other people who know much more about these things and i do like to say florian kramer um but i think it's not impossible that there may be different vaccines used in different age groups um because the because the moderna one doesn't need to be as cold as the pfizer still pretty cold but not as cold and the and the astrazeneca one is much more portable i mean it's it's, it's one of the standard vaccines it doesn't require special temperatures beyond a normal cold chain which means that it's the type of vaccine which is most likely to be helpful for um the developing world and mm -hmm. that's that's a really that means it's really important um, well, I mean, the, the developing world and Australia, where we have, um, you know, it's in some places there are 600 kilometers between towns uh, yeah. and the closest place with an 80 degree uh, negative 80 fridge might be a six hour drive away. Um, yeah. And in that case, how are you going to get everyone vaccinated in these regional areas? Indeed. And, I, you know, and I'll point out that, you know, there are, if you look at the even if you look at the Midwest and the United States, some of these places are quite a long way away from, you know, mm. I, I mean, it's a. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, so these are, I mean, the thing is, I am not in any way downplaying the importance of the vaccine, but I am trying to let people know that it's, we're not flipping a switch and going back to normal. In fact, you know, if you, you can estimate quite reasonably that we're not going to be, you know, at what point at what point are you going to get it well that depends on who you are and whether or not you're in one of the groups that has been prioritized but personally i would not expect to be receiving it until the middle of next year at the earliest probably later mm. um and i think that there's going to be substantial disruption uh for a considerable amount of time still if you ask me when am i likely to receive the vaccine I think it's probably not going to be until the middle of next year, maybe later. And I think that a lot of people, and that's what people should remember, um, this is not over yet. We're going to see substantial disruption continuing through 2021. Although I do say that's relevant because, or that's relative, because where you are has substantially less disruption right now than where I am. But I mean, I, you know, don't take it from me, uh, Vivek Murthy, who's the co-chair of the president-elect's COVID task force. He said 
if the goal is to return life to some semblance of what it was like pre-pandemic, I don't see that happening in 2021. And I also think that it's a little bit wrong of us to be so, I mean, I understand the wish to return to normality, goodness me, I'd love to return to normal. Mm. But the problem is that we're so eager to put the pandemic in the rearview mirror and we're not reflecting enough on what it's going to be like having lived through it. I mean, I think that the desire for normal is entirely understandable. I share it. And yet, I also think that the, uh, I'm not sure that we will ever return to the situation we were in before the pandemic because we will have lived through it and we will have had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that might be a good point to end this particular discussion on, um, I think, because I think people are viewing the vaccine as this magical button that we've pushed. And as you say, it's it's unlikely to be that. Um, and while it's incredibly promising and it is a ray of hope for many people, um, it is also something that will not just cure, make our troubles go away immediately. Absolutely, it won't. It's a um, it's positive. It's there's mm. no way to. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I, I know that sound positive, but I'm genuinely thrilled. Uh, I'm just very tired. Uh, yeah, it's uh, epi- 2020 has been the year that epidemiologists had to uh, give the news, bad news that we uh, wish that we didn't have to give. The yeah. year of hard truths. Yes, that's good lord. That's a that's a that's the title of the book you're going to write, is it, kid? <laughs> no, I th- I, th- I thought that was going to be your memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it has been a very it has been a very difficult year. And I would give anything to have, for it to have not happened. Um, however, at the end of it, we do have something. We can look forward to a better 2021. And there you have it. The truth about vaccines from a world-renowned scientist. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to another brilliant researcher, Dr. Angie Rasmussen, about PCR testing for COVID-19 and how we know that cases are really cases. This has been your dose of sensationalist science and media madness. If you like the podcast, you can find it on Twitter at SensiPod, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, GitMK, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at GitMK. Have a great week.